if you would stay standing as we read God's word together. We're continuing on in our vision series this morning and we're going to be uh, looking at the book of John chapter 4. John chapter 4 and we're going to spend some time in that chapter and so for right now we're going to start in verse 31 and read through verse 38. If you have a Bible, as many of you already have out, please follow along starting in verse 31. If you don't have one this morning, it was frozen to your car windshield or something, check it out behind me or on one of these screens uh, around the room. John chapter 4 starting in verse 31. This is what God's word says. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor, others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Let's continue worshiping as Well, it's good to be with you this morning. I want to start by uh, saying thank you. Um, I know a lot of people were praying uh, for me, um, for my family, and just thank you for that. Was, um, if you don't know, tragedy um, hit my family, and um, it, was a, it was a difficult time, and it still is, and a dark time, but we definitely felt the light of the Lord um, breaking in, and um, I know that you are praying, so I appreciate that. Um, why don't we Why don't we pray now, uh, once again, before we uh, dive into God's word? Oh Lord, I want to stop and say thank you that you are the God who is present with His people. Who are we that because of Jesus you would be our companion throughout all of life? You are with us in the darkest valleys and in the darkest nights. The Lord who watches over us never slumbers. And you are with us right now. I ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts that we would see Jesus. Father God, would that we see Jesus this morning in your word through your spirit. Move in your hearts. Move in our hearts, I pray. Remove within us what would draw our attention away from you this morning. Tune us in, O Lord. And may your work within us have full range of motion to draw us to Christ and make us more like Christ. For the sake of your name, O Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, today is the second of... Second week in our four-week series focusing on the new vision of Good News Bible Church. And by the way, I want to highlight that the, the text for this series is not the vision statement itself, but Scripture. Every week, we're going to be looking at God's Word to see the biblical foundation that led to the vision. Our vision came about um, by the leadership thinking through the deep implications of Scripture 
for this church at this time and this place. And I want you to know that I, for one, am so grateful and so pumped for where we are and how God is leading us. In the midst of a, a, a difficult month this past month, just thinking of what God might have in store for us would honestly lift my head and put a smile on my face. I can't wait. I can't wait to take this journey with you, led by God, looking to God, depending on God, together with you. So last week, Pastor Ralph laid out the framework for the vision as well as the first emphasis, transformation. The gospel brings transformation. And we are seeking to be used by God to spread this transformation in our own lives and in our community and more. Can you imagine the impact of an eruption of lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ overflowing and flooding throughout this area where God has placed us. Today our vision series continues with the second emphasis and that is having a mindset of mission. A missional mindset. We're going to be looking at what that means but I think it starts with one important factor. How we see the way we see ourselves and as a result, the way we see our surroundings. So raise your hand if you are in the glasses club or wear corrective lenses at all. Millennials, I expect to see most of you with your hands raised, although fashion glasses do not count, even though they go with skinny jeans. Now who here, now who here really couldn't see Like you were practically like Mr. Magoo before you got glasses. Do you remember what it was like that very first time you put on your glasses? I hear it's an incredible experience. Like all of a sudden, you can actually see what's there. What's always been there, but you just haven't known it. You see the world in a different light than before. Last week, we had Lisa's old roommate over from out of town, and she was telling us about her three-year-old nephew who just got a pair of glasses and loves them. When he put them on, he said, Mom, I could see cars. I could see everything. And they couldn't even, like, take them away from him. In fact, the very first night, he just wanted to hold them while he slept. It's like his whole world opened up to him. And all of a sudden, he noticed things that he wasn't fully seeing before. Or just think if you had never seen color before. They recently developed glasses that enable people with color blindness to actually see color for the first time. It's incredible. And I read about a man who got a pair of these glasses and couldn't stop staring at the Mountain Dew can in front of him. It was so beautiful to him that he said he was fighting back the tears. Now let's be honest. Beauty has never been associated with Mountain Dew. But it was to him. And if that was beautiful, you can imagine him going outside on a spring day and just taking it all in. Seeing the world in a different light. Seeing all that's really there. 
think the astonishing thing in all these instances is realizing that there were things you were not quite seeing until you put glasses on, right? It's actually almost scary to think that we could be going through life not seeing, without seeing certain things and not even knowing it. But the wonderful thing is, renewed sight, seeing rightly, makes us able to see things as they are. See all that's really there. We see what's set before us in a new light. And as important as this is, seeing rightly is all the more important as it relates to our lives as Christians. I'm not talking about getting an eye test. I'm talking about the way we view all of life. Our perspective as believers. Our outlook, especially as it relates to this question. As Christians, how do we see ourselves? I guess you could call that our inlook. As Christians, how do we see ourselves? We need to ask this question because like a person needing corrective lenses, we often don't fully see what's really there. So often we don't quite see the full picture of ourselves as believers. Certain aspects get blurry. Certain aspects of our identity as believers can go unseen. And it's possible for us to go through life without even knowing it. In fact, I'm convicted that there's one aspect in particular of our identity as Christians that often goes unseen. When we look at ourselves in the mirrors, when we consider who God has called us to be as believers, it's our general tendency to let this one escape our notice. But as we look in Scripture, it's actually a central part of our identity. So in our remaining time together, we will seek to bring this aspect into focus through God's Word. I want to put on God's perspective like a fresh pair of glasses to really see the central part of who we are as believers. My hope is that today we will begin to, to really see ourselves in this light, to see ourselves differently. It's a big goal, but this is the vision series. We're, we're trying to think big, so my prayer is that if necessary, we would have a shift in our thinking, myself included, to maybe change the way we actually see ourselves as believers. So how should we see ourselves? The answer lies in examining the way Jesus saw himself, paying close attention to what was central to his identity while on earth. And I think there's an intriguing example of this in our main passage today, John chapter 4, verses 1 through 38. So I want to invite you to turn there if you haven't already. We'll be spending most of our time in this passage. John chapter 4, verses 1 through 38. Leading up to what takes place in our passage, Jesus has just got done speaking with a man who came to him in secret, in the dark of the night. His name, Nicodemus. He was well-respected, well-to-do, and well-educated. A devout Jewish man, very religious, very moral. But by the end of the night, Nicodemus has returned 
into the shadows from which he came. The sun is now up, and we're about to meet someone who is very, very different. Chapter 4, verse 1 picks it up. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. These verses set the stage for what happens next. We see Jesus and his disciples leave Jerusalem and set off for a several days journey towards Galilee. But before getting there, it says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. This is interesting. Why did Jesus have to passed through Samaria. Many other Jewish leaders during this time would take a longer alternative route. There was another route just to avoid Samaria. So Jesus didn't have to go to Samaria because it was the only way. More than anything, he had to because it was God's will. So we're given this hint that a divine appointment is on its way. And at this point, Jesus and his disciples have already traveled 40 miles on foot. They had walked up and down rough terrain for a day and a half straight. And now it was noon, the hottest part of the day, and the sun was beating down on them. And I imagine that Jesus was sweating. Sometimes just thinking about that blows me away. The God who made the universe sweating. We watch as he stops telling his disciples to go ahead and get food. He was wearied from the journey. Jesus was tired. He was worn out. He was drained. Do you ever feel that way? Jesus did too. And so he sits down to rest at a well. But then coming down the road, we see a woman with a water jar approaching the well. And what's remarkable is that she's all by herself. You see, normally women traveled to get water in groups. I imagine that along this road, there was often the soft murmur of conversations and the occasional burst of laughter. But not with this woman. She walked alone in the quiet, alienated. It seems like everyone was avoiding her and she was avoiding everyone. Notice that she came in the middle of the day. Everyone else came in the early morning or in the early evening, in the, in the cool of the day. But she came when the sun was at its very hottest, when it was least likely that you would cross paths with anybody. But on this day, she does cross paths with somebody. She gets to the well and quickly goes about her business, acting as if Jesus wasn't there. But he interrupts her. Give me a drink, 
Jesus probably was actually thirsty. But more than that, his words are the beginning of him reaching out to her, drawing her out. And I want us to reflect on this scene for a moment. We can't miss this. Jesus was in the middle of resting. He was tired. And yet he saw this opportunity to reach out and his heart said yes. If we were in Jesus' shoes, we could probably think of reasons to talk ourselves out of it. Reasons like, I don't feel like it right now. I'm in the middle of something. This is not ministry time. This is relaxed time. It's so easy to talk ourselves out of things, right? But I'm convicted by the fact that Jesus, our Master, did not. In the face of these things, Jesus didn't choose to do nothing. He chose to allow divine priorities to determine His schedule. Brothers and sisters, may the example that we see here in Jesus remind us opportunities often come at inopportune times. Opportunities often don't wait until our schedule is clear. Opportunities often don't wait until we're feeling great, spiritually and physically charged. The best opportunities often come when it's inconvenient, uncomfortable, and unplanned. Listen, is it wrong to rest? No, it's good. Is it wrong to plan? No, it's wise. But what's wrong is when we allow these things to be the ultimate source of determining our schedule. When we use them like a shield with God. I'm resting. I have other plans. I pray that when opportunities come at inopportune times, I and you would cry out to God and by His power choose to allow divine priorities to determine our schedule. That's what Jesus is doing when he says, give me a drink. Taking a bath, the woman quickly dismisses Jesus. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? You see, there were deep, deep divides between the Jewish people and Samaritans. There was a lot of history here. The Jewish people saw the Samaritans as sellouts and traitors. They had married the Gentile people of the land and made their own hybrid religion, keeping some aspects of Judaism and rejecting others. They had built their own rival temple. But 100 years prior to Jesus, the Jewish people had attacked the temple and destroyed it. And during Jesus' lifetime, the tension was building all the more it was about to erupt. Jewish travelers were killed during this time in Samaria. During this time when Jesus was there, Jewish travelers were killed in Samaria. And the Samaritans desecrated the Jewish temple. The divides ran deep at every level. Ethnic, religious, political, national, historical. And on top of that, she was a woman. During this time, Jewish leaders did not speak to women in public. In fact, we have writings from this time where Jewish leaders actually instruct their men to not speak to their own wives 
or daughters too much because it was considered a waste of time. Seriously. Let alone a Samaritan woman. But do you think our master was bound by these divides? Jesus overcomes them all. He says to the woman, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus is beginning to steer the conversation towards helping her to discover who he truly is. He wants her to see that although she could give him water, he could give her a gift that is much greater. A gift from God that brings life. He calls it living water. But still we hear the woman respond from behind the thick walls built up in her life. Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Then she says almost mockingly, Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. In other words, don't be so ridiculous. She might have thought that was the end of the conversation. No one would have the audacity to claim to be greater than Jacob, a founder of the faith. But Jesus continues. His response implies that he is far greater. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In essence, Jesus is saying that Jacob provided water that would quench thirst temporarily. But he could provide something that would quench a much, much deeper thirst. He could bring an uncontainable fullness to her soul, bubbling over now and forever. At this point, we actually notice the woman's facial expression soften a bit. She is intrigued, but still staying at the surface level only. He says, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. In other words, she doesn't want to come to that well anymore. Anything that would provide a quick solution to that, the alienation, the isolation. But Jesus is leading her deeper to the real solution the one underneath it all. At first it seems like he abruptly and maybe actually impolitely changes the subject. Go, call your husband and come here. But at second look, Jesus is not changing the subject at all. He is helping her to see what he has been talking about all along. Her true thirst. The deep longing in her soul for something more. I have no husband. 
the woman replies. Her words are sharp, like a verbal lid sealing shut this murky area of her life. But with the careful precision of a surgeon, Jesus continues, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. We now see the sad reason why the woman came to the well when she thought nobody else would be there. It was her shame. But notice how gentle Jesus is with her. He goes out of the way to commend her. He doesn't shout at her. He doesn't say, you liar. He says, you, you've spoken truly. And then he shows her his full knowledge of the rest of the story. She had been married five times, the force of which was stronger in their day than in ours. And now she was now living together with a man with whom she was not married, which is outside of God's will. So why delve into these details? Jesus wants her to see that she is going through relationship after relationship after relationship because there is a deep, deep thirst in her soul. But like Jacob's water, these relationships never truly satisfy her soul. She keeps holding on to the idea that the next relationship will bring that fulfillment, that rest that her heart longs for, but it never does. It never lasts. As hard as we may try, we cannot fill the vacancies in our souls with the things of life. When we pursue empty things, we just find emptiness. We were made for something more. Jesus is gently awakening this woman to see that she is truly thirsty. He wants her to see that her soul thirsts for her deepest need, a relationship with God. He alone can satisfy. And that is exactly what Jesus offers. I love the woman's response. Sir, I see that you're a prophet. What more can you say? Actually, it shows that she is slowly becoming more open to Jesus. Standing where they were, they could likely see the ruins up on the mountainside where the Samaritan temple once stood. So she points to them quickly, trying to divert the focus away from herself. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, she says. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. She brings up a debate as a smokescreen. Sometimes it's easy to hide behind issues when God wants to deal with the issues of our hearts. But Jesus is not distracted. He uses even this to speak into her deepest need. He says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit 
And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. In other words, you're not going to need to debate about where to worship God anymore. The time has dawned when you can have personal access to the Father anytime and any place. It's not about worshiping God from this mountain or from Jerusalem, but from your heart in spirit and in truth. God the Father is seeking, pursuing such people to worship Him at the personal heart level. We can't see this as just a random theological discussion. We can't pull it from its context. Can you imagine how this spoke to this woman's deepest need? Her whole adult life, it seems she was seeking relationship after relationship to bring rest to her heart. And now she hears, you've been seeking so many people, but God is seeking you. God is seeking. He desires a personal relationship with you. He will dwell in your heart. And He Himself will always be there anytime and any place. He will not let you down. This is what your soul longs for. This will quench your restless thirst. I imagine the woman was silent for a moment, taking it all in. And she tilts her head like she's realizing something and makes a statement as if lofting a ball for Jesus to hit. I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Beneath this statement lies a question. Is it you? Jesus answers her question. He had been leading up to this from the beginning. He declares to her, I who speak to you am He, or literally in the Greek, the one who speaks to you, I am. Just then the disciples arrive on the scene. And she drops her water jar. She drops her water jar and immediately begins to spread the message to everyone in town. Everyone she was just trying to avoid. Her shame has been lifted. Her joy is uncontainable. The woman's actions draw a literary contrast with the disciples. While she is spreading Christ's witness, they interrupt Christ's witness. And right away they're missing the point. They try to get Jesus to eat, but he was still somehow totally focused on his witness. Maybe he was praying for the woman. Maybe he was spiritually preparing because he knew the crowd was already on their way. Whatever it was, it was so important to him that he wasn't interested in food at that moment. He says to the disciples, I have food to eat that you do not know about. But the disciples didn't get it. By the way, the disciples, God used them. He inspired them to write the Gospels. And I just see such humility in the fact that they're they're okay with writing about the fact that they did not get it. Imagine John writing this. 
But the disciples didn't get it. They couldn't see what was so important to him. Confused, they start looking around. Has anyone brought him something to eat? I don't know. Did you? I mean, he must have already eaten. But I'm so glad they were confused. Because Jesus, his answer provides us with a glimpse into how he saw himself. Why he did what he did. Why he had to come to Samaria. Why even though he was weary and resting, he chose to take the opportunity. Why he kept reaching out to this woman. Drawing her out. Why he wasn't deterred but deliberate in focus. Why he carefully led her to see who he truly is. He tells his disciples, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He's, in other words, this is what I live and breathe. He's saying to the disciples, just like food is a vital part of your life, this is a vital part of mine. This is part of who he was. Fundamental to his identity is that he was sent by God. And you may think that this sounds like an overstatement at first. But then we have to look at the rest of the book of John. And what we find is so striking. So I actually I want to do that really quick. We're going to breeze through the whole book. And I would love if you would follow along so you can see it for yourself. We're just going to move from this point forward. We'll just do it like this. Here we go. Chapter 5. Ready? Chapter 5. I won't be reading the whole verses. So just kind of skim through them. At chapter 5, starting at verse 30. Go. I seek not my own, but the will of Him who sent me. Verse 36. The Father has sent me. Verse 37. The Father who sent me. Chapter 6, verse 29. This is the work of God, that you believe in Him who He sent. Verse 38. This, the will of Him who sent me. Now flip over to chapter 7, verse 28. He who sent me. Verse 29. He sent me. Now chapter 8, verse 36. No, verse, verse 26. He who sent me. Verse 29. He who sent me. Chapter 9, verse 4. The works of Him who sent me. Chapter 10, verse 36. The Father consecrated and sent into the world. Chapter 11, verse 42. That they may believe that you sent me. Chapter 12, verse 44. Sent me. Verse 45. Sent me. Chapter 13, verse 20. The one who sent me. Chapter 14, verse 24. The Father who sent me. 
chapter 15, verse 21. It's encouraging to still hear page turn. Uh, Him who sent me. Chapter 16, verse 5. Him who sent me. Chapter 17. This is the last chapter. Verse 8. They have believed that you sent me. Verse 21. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 23. Sent me. Verse 25. You have sent me. It's overwhelming. And I skipped a lot. In fact, we only covered half of the occurrences. Half. In the book of John, we find this expression related to Jesus a total of 41 times. We would, we would be here until uh, late. And when you put together these 41 verses, you could summarize the core message like this. Jesus is sent by God to reveal His works and His words. This is fundamental to His identity. He is sent. And then we get to the very end of the book of John. So if you still have your Bibles open, there's one left. John chapter 20. Jesus has been crucified. And He has been resurrected. But His disciples don't know it yet. We find them in verse 19, hold up together behind locked doors. These are not an elite group of trained professionals. They're just His followers, nothing else. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is there, standing among them. And He says something truly amazing. We can't miss this. Verse 21. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. As the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. Can you believe it? This is one of the most profound Bible verses for the life of the disciple. As Jesus was sent, so we are sent. What was so central to His identity has been transferred to us as He saw Himself So we are to see ourselves when I ask myself, who am I? Sent is to be named among the top. Oh, I pray that that would be true more and more. As He was sent, so we are sent. And this is even echoed in our main passage back in John chapter 40. We've strayed a long ways, but we're coming back. We left off in verse 34 where Jesus said, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me. And then in verse 38, the very last verse of our passage, the first three words we hear from Jesus are this, I sent you. Him who sent me, I sent you. The baton has been passed. What does this mean? It means that like Jesus, we are to have a mindset of always being on mission. This is how we see ourselves. And how we see ourselves affects the way we live and the choices that we make. Jesus was sent by God 
to reveal God's works and His words. Or as another way of putting it, for us, is that you and I, each one of us, is sent by God to reveal God's character and His message. It means every day waking up, looking in the mirror, and seeing ourselves as sent. We are sent to reveal God's character and His message. It means that your occupation, however defined at this point in your life, has incredible significance. It is a lie from the devil that it's only those in ministry who are doing the important work. I reject that lie with my whole heart. You are sent to where God has placed you with a great purpose. You are sent there to reveal God's character and His message in how you work, in how you live, in how you interact. It means that our homes are not hideouts, that our locations throughout this city are not accidental, and that our neighbors are not our enemies. We are sent there. It means that this location where God has rooted us as a church family is not a minor detail. We are collectively sent here that by leaving these walls and working together, our neighborhood might catch a glimpse of who God is and the hope of salvation. It means that when we gather on Sunday mornings, we are not here to just do what we always do and see who we always see. It means that while we need to be here for ourselves, we have a greater purpose than being here for just ourselves. We are sent here. We are on mission on Sundays and Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Thursdays and Fridays and even Saturdays. We are always on mission. That is our mindset. Fundamental to who we are is that we are sent So as I invite the band to come forward, if you're feeling like this isn't humanly possible, then good. Because we can't begin to do this on our own. But I want you to know that in John chapter 20, verse 22 comes after verse 21. Immediately after Jesus declares these words, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. The next verse adds, And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus doesn't leave us to do this on our own. It is by and only by the power of the living God inside of us that we are sent. Let's pray.